Hey everybody. Today I have a special episode with my friend and the acclaimed children's book author and illustrator, John Clausen. John's on Mubo sharing five books that shaped him growing up. John doesn't remember having a ton of books in his house when he was a child. For the most part, he and his family would go to the library. But he does remember visiting his grandfather's house, and while there, he would stay in his father's childhood bedroom. And in the room, there was a shelf filled with books and magazines and comics. And John remembers sitting on the bed and leafing through these books for hours. And so they were really formative for him, and they're the ones he chose to focus on in today's episode. John and I both love talking about books, and we do a lot of talking. This is a long, unedited conversation. So grab a snack, grab some coffee, uh, get comfortable, <laughs> and hear John and I talk all about these books and the authors and illustrators behind them. And we also talk about John's background and a lot about his creative process. Um, one disclaimer, at the end of, near the end of the conversation, you might notice it uh, like a an abrupt shift in the way we're talking. And that's because when we were wrapping up, a huge rainstorm hit the Bay Area and knocked out my internet and computer and caused John and I to go into a tailspin trying to save our recordings. And uh, so you'll, you can hear we've, we've popped back on to say goodbye to each other like an hour later. And so you might kind of notice that. Um, a huge thank you to John for spending so much time uh, on this on this episode with me, and we both hope that you guys really enjoy it. Hey, John. Hi, Taylor. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me today. I have been looking forward to this for weeks. Um, I'm so excited to get to talk a little bit about your work and your background, but mostly about these five books that you've picked as your influences. I know that <laughs> it can be kind of hard to do this. And you said that you purposely tried to not think about it too hard because if you had, you probably would have ended up with five different books altogether. <laughs> yeah, but I like I, my yeah. choices, but I think that that's right. I think that 10 more minutes would have given five different books. It's, it's totally understandable. I feel like the this can be hard, I think, too, because a lot of times I feel like books that are influences on you or films or songs or whatever I they like get buried deep in your psyche and it can be hard to extract that and then I think it could be even harder to explain like why <laughs> well, that was, the here, was that like there are probably five books I read as like a 25 year old picture books or whatever when I started doing this work that were big influences but the approach to this list was more like I'm sure these influenced me somehow <laughs> as a five-year-old and it'd be fun to talk about like to theorize on why that why that happened yeah, exactly. And uh, I, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, you know, I this is only the second official podcast that I've recorded. So I'm thinking of it more as just a very casual conversation between friends. I know that I love chatting about books, and I, I think that you do too. I do. Um, so we can any tangents that you want to go on anywhere this conversation goes, it's completely it's completely fine with me. Um, All right. I, th I think that for people who do read Moonbo, they probably know they probably know who John Clausen is, they, and they've probably read your books. But just in case there are people who haven't read your work, could you just mm -hmm. give us a little bit of an official <laughs> introduction to who you are and like how and why you ended up working in picture books? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I do picture books. That is my primary job right now. I write and illustrate them. I write them when I can. They don't come as fast that way. But when I'm not writing them, I illustrate for other people. Um, mostly Mac Barnett these days. He's uh, the writer I usually work with. But I've written or I've illustrated for other people also. Um, when I do write my own, they're mostly done in dialogue and they're mostly pretty clipped. They're very simple and no one really acts how they should in my books. And um, they're just very simple all the way around. When I write for myself, I like to give myself the license to be simple. When I do work for other people, I often get in my own head about it and I overwork it or draw a lot. But when I'm writing and illustrating for myself, it's a nice excuse to keep it as clean as possible. Um, I usually get into I seem to be preoccupied with guilt, feelings of guilt a lot in my books. Everyone seems to be guilty of something and exploring that. I think uh, I like to do it with kids because kids certainly know guilt as well. And so they, I think it's interesting for both of us to talk about it. Um, me and the kids, I mean. And so that's, that's most of my books are about that to a certain extent, or at least about relationships that, you know, have something backgrounded in them, subtext that's going on behind whatever they're talking about to each other. Um, my illustration style, as I say, is usually fairly simple and graphic, but when I, I do enjoy getting into the atmosphere a little bit when, when the story affords it. Um, I spent a lot of years working in animation as a set designer and concept artist, and that stuff was mainly atmospheric. And so it was a lot of work, and it was nice to get into the books and, and do simpler work when that career change came. But every now and then, I like to go back and, and add a little bit of fog to the place or whatever it is that's needed um yeah how did you get into animation i don't even know if i i know that what was it that got you excited about animation it was a job i wanted a job really badly when i when i first started drawing even in grade school like early grade school like second third grade i remember thinking i want a job to do this i don't i never ever had I would meet kids who were like, well, I'm going to go to Paris for a year after high school and paint. I was like, why? What are you going to paint? What are you going to even do? And you didn't like, want to I be like a bohemian. <laughs> no, I never had the bohemian. I didn't ever have my own thing, I thought. I didn't. Yeah. There was two attractive things about animation. One was that it was a job where you had a parking spot and, a, and like a job to go to every day, which I love the thought of. And then the other thing was that looking at the people who were doing these things, they were meant to be cogs. They were meant to get on on board with the movie, whatever it was, whatever style it was, whatever you had to draw, you drew. And you just got really good at shifting to those different styles. And all of that, I really loved the thought of. I I, I didn't have, as far as I knew, any sort of axe to grind stylistically or otherwise. I just didn't, I didn't care about that. And it was a surprise when I started working in books on my own, or even with the studios, frankly, before I left the thing, to think that, oh, I have a take, actually. There are, there are ways to do this that I don't agree with and I want to do it my way. I was very surprised when that happened. It took years after I was out of college before that started happening, but it came really strong when it did. And now I think I'm very spoiled because I just work on the books. And whenever I do have to collaborate, <laughs> I, I think I, I take over the project kind of quickly. But was it like, when you say you wanted it as a job, like how did you know animation was a job? Was it that you watched like animated movies when you were little and you kind of fell in love with that and you liked drawing? Yeah, or- yeah, I think... When we were like, when I was a kid, I think, you know, the same things, uh, it, the little mermaid came out and blew up and then yes. uh, with the next one, beauty and the beast and then Aladdin. And with all those movies came all this promo stuff. I must've seen it on the VHSs or wherever it was. <laughs> and it was just footage of people sitting at desks in these buildings. 
and um and you're just like holy cow there's there's buildings of people and they live apparently in nice warm climates <laughs> living in Canada and like and just and I would just watch these being like it's a job you just go and you put your headphones on and they and you have your own little desk and you just draw these guys all day and like that just seemed like the perfect speed to me I I love that idea I remember that. I remember those parts of the VHS too, or where even yeah. with DVDs, I used to love when they'd have like the special features that you could yeah. watch. Yeah. You don't really get that anymore. Now you have to just like go to YouTube or I know there's media. like, there's these places. We went to Disney World when I was, I think, 11 or 12. Maybe I think it was 11. And um, Disney World had this building. I'm not sure if they still do where they have animators working there. You get to kind of go on this catwalk and look at them, look down into the studio of people doing the work on the move on the, on the films. And they were working on Pocahontas. I remember <laughs> looking down and seeing these drawings and everybody's desk was a disaster. It was the other thing. And my mom left that building and looked at me and said, that's why your desk looks like that. And she's <laughs> like, it was a clarifying moment for her that I was like, I just saw your people. Like I, now I understand. And I was so, I was Amazing. just, as, yeah, I was just as excited because I really had felt like that too. I was like, this is where I'm going to, I'm going to work in Disney world on Pocahontas. Like this is what I'm going to do. And it was just such a huge thing. I, I'm very surprised that it didn't work out that way because for so long that was the job I thought I wanted. Yeah. So what was the what was the thing that made you switch over to picture books? What was kind of the the moment for I, you? Or? I had done a student film at college, and it was early days of YouTube. But we all got to put our films up on this early version of YouTube and put them on the internet, and so they got to travel around a little bit. And I heard from an art director. Um, at Simon & Schuster a few years after I had graduated and the film was just sort of going around. And she said, I've seen this film. I really like it. Do you want to make a picture book out of this? Do you want to try and adapt it? And I, I'd made it with a friend of mine and we wrote each other and we said, yeah, let's give it a shot. But <laughs> my the only book I could remember was one of the books on our list. It was Sam and the Firefly. I didn't think about picture books. It wasn't on my mind at all. But I, I was like, well, I remember a picture book, Sam and the Firefly. How many pages was that? And I went to go get Sam and the Firefly at a bookstore and it was like 90 pages long. So I was like, great, 90 pages. Let's get, the, let's get this rough into 90 pages. And so we did. And I delivered it to her at Simon & Schuster. And she was like, this is like war and peace. Why did you give me a 90 page? Like, do you know what picture books are? And I said, well, and then the more we get, got into it, the film is very, it's called an eye for an eye and it's about it's this little guy moving around he's missing an eye and so he's trying to fake stand behind things that look like his eye but it's very much based on movement and like sort of that's the gag and so you need all those pages to do what the film does we thought and she was like i think a this is unprintable because it's 90 pages but b i think you're actually right that this is the only way it works and so we, i don't think we can make this one but hold the line i'll look out for other things you can illustrate and sure enough like four years later she wrote with a text uh, saying, we got this text. I think you'd be good for it. Do you want to illustrate it? And I was still working. I think I was at DreamWorks after Coraline had ended. I was working on movies again. And I had my evenings free. I, was, I wasn't doing anything. So I thought, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do some. And I did it. And the minute I started doing the pages, something clicked. And I was like, so much of what I'm angry at working on movies, this solves. There's something about this format that I really like and I can I I get and I'd been so scared of freelance work and that life. But then when they told me the schedule that these books were on, where they give you the text and they're like, okay, well, in three months, show us the roughs. And then in you know six months or whatever it is, you give us the finals. I thought that's more of a steady job than you know whatever else illustration I thought was, editorial or the New York Times spots or this week to week sort of hustling for, for little jobs. 
if I can get two or three books going a year, that's a schedule, that's a calendar, that's, I can live that way. And so the more I sort of dug down on what this actually meant, uh, the more attractive it became. But it was mostly the form. It was like, oh, this is how I like to tell stories. I like this size of story very much. Uh, yeah, I can see that. I was When I was going over some of the stuff that you wrote in the newsletter and thinking about your books and you talk about it and then I thought of too is that there's so much restraint. And I think yes. like in a, a picture book, that is, I think, one of the key elements anyways is that re- there's so much restraint in it, right? So Sometimes, I think, yeah, I think well, so. Well, I just and mean was- like, it's sort of the brevity of it, right? You kind of have to work around it in a certain way that I feel like maybe suits your style. Uh, yeah, in feature animation, which was what that was where I was, it's the opposite of restraint, where they're like, well, we got $120 million, <laughs> let's just spend it all. And you're like, what? Like, like, there was no, anytime I tried to introduce some sort of restraint, either in the storyboarding or in the design, they were like, why would you do that? We have the money. And it just wasn't the conversation. I was interested in. And I think partly because I was insecure, those studios are so full of such skilled people and I was doing okay. But every now and then I would find myself in a room where I knew I was in over my head, technically speaking, and I just couldn't keep up. And so I would try to find ways of solving my assignments by not drawing things. Be like, well, what if we don't show anything? <laughs> and they're like, Austin, you got to show something sometime. And I was like, I know. But... And so as soon as books came along, I didn't. They were like, what if it just looks fine if you don't show anything. And it actually makes more sense if you don't show anything. And so it just felt like finding home when I started with the books. Mm. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about a little bit that I feel like a lot of us who work in the creative industry uh, get obsessed over, at least I do, is is the creative process and like the artistic process. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately and I haven't really articulated it. So I'm not sure if it's going to come out right. But I've been thinking of, I know that like the writing that we do is quite different in that when I'm writing something, it's most often about the art or about the story or the book or a person. And, you know, I'm not writing fictional stories. Mm. Um, But so one of the things that I have found lately is that it's, it's both simultaneously frustrating and maybe one of the most exciting parts. But I'll have this idea for what I want to write about and it will strike me and I'll be interested. But it's still really, really small, right? Like it's on this little mm-hmm. shelf, like in my mind. And I can't really go anywhere with it, but I'm excited about it. So then I have to, in order to want to write about it, I have to find like a connection. And so that could be anything. It could be like a word, a color, a, a line from a song or something somebody says in a podcast. Like it's just some kind of connection and I have no idea why it works, but it will just come to me and it will like, it's kind of like two fuses coming together and I'll be like, Oh yes, that's connected to that idea in my mind that I didn't really know how I wanted to talk about it. But now I kind of do know because these two connections or maybe more than two come together and then I'm able to sit down and like start writing. But like, I'm not the type of person who can just sit down and just pour stuff out and then later go out and like edit it. I have to have this, connection and I find it so frustrating because I'll just be walking around with this idea for sometimes like weeks and I'm just kind of and I hate the idea of waiting for something to to come together with it like I just want to be like if I'm on a deadline I just want to get it done you know but I have to I'm doing the thing it. I'm doing the thing by the way that's really great for podcasting where I'm nodding a lot as you're talking which is super <laughs> super great I'm, thank you for yeah. the nodding <laughs> yeah I'm not a lot no it sounds very it sounds very very similar you need a way in and you don't even really know what you've got until you have that way in. You have like, as you say, you like have a crush on something, but it's very, 
nebulous and you don't yes. even really know like it's not even worth anybody's time yet uh but then and you could do two or three things even in in between and then all of a sudden you get whatever it is that doesn't crush the nebulous little bubble that you like it, it's mac and i talked about this a little bit where it's like this sounds more negative than it is but making things is kind of a destructive act right you have yeah. this beautiful orb of an idea that doesn't really have any sort of specifics yet and then you go about the violent business of banging it into something that can actually be read or produced or sung or listened to or whatever it is. And it feels a little bit like you're, you're, you're roughing up this perfect like bubble of an idea that you had that you didn't even really know what it was, but you got to make something. The alternative is just leave a bunch of bubbles on your shelf, right? That don't have anything. And so, but it does feel like the journey is to, at least for me is to try and get projects or try and get Try and get away, whatever that key is that you're talking about, that the key has to wreck the thing as little as possible. So you leave as much intact as you can. It, it becomes as vague almost or as dreamy as you found it. You just needed a little bit more so that the audience could grab onto something and that you could grab onto something to make it. But it sounds very similar. It sounds like, yeah, and it's always, it's, it's, it's never the thing that you think it's going to be. For me, I still remember... Um, I want my hat back, had that, where I had a cover and a title. I had the cover and the title with everything on it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't have a story. And I hadn't written anything before as a, as a picture book, um, anything I liked anyway. And I was trying to write it, and I hated the sound of it. And it didn't sound like me. And I didn't know why I was doing it. And I just didn't, I didn't have a story anyway. But then um, I think, I, I can't remember what I was, I was reading a lot of Cormac McCarthy. And I was thinking about what he does with his quotation marks or the lack of them. When people talk in a lot of his books, there's no quotation marks. And, um, and I thought, well, that it's so graphically beautiful and it's such a neat idea. Um, I thought, what if he could do it like that? Where like, there wasn't even any quotation marks and there was no attributions. It's just people talking. And I, I like, I can write like that for some reason. I like writing people talking without a narrator talking properly that was the nervousness was I didn't think I could write or like, and so if, but if it's just people talking, then I'm off the hook because they, you know, they're animals who knows if they know how to talk. And so I, like, as soon as I thought of that, I just, I remember standing up and walking to the laptop and basically banging out the book in like the space of 15 minutes, because all of a sudden everything that was making me nervous about writing that key of being like, well, what if you don't write most of what you think writing is? And then it clicked and I didn't even have a story, but as I was going like live writing the thing in the word document being like, someone's got to lie because we have pictures, we can show that he's lying. So someone should lie. And then like, but just that, that stuff falls. It's like what you're talking about. You just sort of, it almost feels like a weird tightrope walk while you've found this key, while the key is clear to you or whatever it is, you run as fast as you can while you're still holding it. And then you, you hopefully you get it done in some sort of intact way. Yeah. And mine is sort of like... I have to be this sponge for a little while, maybe in the very beginning part of it where I'm just like absorbing so much information to just sort of extract just this little bit that's going to like speak to me and be able to get me excited. And so I'll have to be like out on walks and reading a ton mm -hmm. and listening to a ton to see like how these, um, I just was thinking about this the other day because I was reading some books that were sort of talking about all these different mediums of art forms and it was it's kind of like synthesizing all these different ideas that are just floating in my mind and then it's like all of a sudden two will kind of fuse together and then that is sort of when the tightrope starts happening where I have to like yeah. get to the page and figure out how to articulate this thing that is in my mind 
You're but in a mood though, I think too, like in those times when you're listening to things and you're reading things, you're picking things out that don't necessarily have obvious connections yet. But right. often it happens that like you were in a specific mood to make something you didn't know. And there's a reason why you were just listening to this one type of stuff and you were drawing this kind of thing or writing this or reading that. And totally. all of it, all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's why I was listening to that over and over again or whatever it was. And like, all, like your brain has, your brain's a little bit ahead of you and you're just <laughs> trying to feed it so that it can reveal itself. But like, yeah, that happens a lot to me where you're like, oh yeah, that's no wonder I was doing that over and over again. What, do you have like a process for, because you are somebody who on Instagram and, and online, you, you share a lot of incredible inspiration that you're looking at from all different areas, right? And so when you're trying to gather, let's just say things that you find inspiring, like what is your process for do you even, or is it just kind of in you, in you, and it just sort of comes out, you know, unconsciously later? But like, what is your process for gathering inspiration, and then how does it get onto the page? Is it different for your writing versus your illustrating, or do they kind of work together? Like, what is that it's, like? The gathering inspiration part used to be very methodical. I think that in college, and then for a lot of years after that, it was I was seeing things I liked, and then almost like dissecting them, right? Where you're like, well, how did they do that, and what did what did, what was the process there? Like, how does they how are they organizing information? And, you know, you're, you're, you're recycling that in your own stuff and trying to use tricks you've seen. Um, but I can't remember when it happened. We were in a museum or something many years ago now. It didn't feel like that long ago, but I was looking at paintings on the walls and I all of a sudden realized how I'd been moving through the rooms was different than how I normally did. I was, I was looking at things and almost like a little green light would go on or or it wouldn't. It wasn't even like as hard as a red light, but like the green light was so simple. It had become so simple. It was like, I like that. I, I like it. it. That's, that's to me, that works. And I, there's, it's talking to me somehow. And I stopped the second part of that where I was like, well, why? And what's going on? And like, what can I take? You know, um, that whole second part has gone almost completely quiet at least on the foreground, maybe the background is still robbing all these things I like, but <laughs> consciously it's much simpler and it's gotten so nice and quiet where you're just like, I don't have any business dissecting what this means to me, why I'm reacting to this. And it was the same way with choosing these books. It was like, I'm not going to dig down on why I think that like, it's more complicated than that. And it's more innate than that. And it's more intimate than that. And I'm not going to pretend that I can do that. I'm just going to collect all these things and they'll swim around in there, like you're saying. And like, eventually something will come out that maybe uses something, but it won't be a conscious process of mine. And I've really enjoyed, and I almost like revel in the process now where it's like, it's so quiet and it's so personal to say, yeah, this or yeah, that, and not put it in any sort of category or spreadsheet or figure out what I'm going to do with it. And just to be like that too, it feels, um, it feels almost political. <laughs> like it is surprising sometimes when you do choose to dig down on somebody where you're like, this guy has like five or six things that all of a sudden I've been liking. So maybe let's go check him out. And then it turns out that there's all sorts of things that line up about this guy's life or whatever it is. And that's really interesting too. when it happens because you're like, oh, I yeah, just I saw that. Like the way he, how does it happen that I like the way a guy draws a tree? And then it turns out he was born five minutes from where I was born. Like <laughs> weird stuff like that, that happens that you just, it's very optimistic because then you hope that other things that you're doing you're burying the same sort of things, right? People are connecting to that in a very uncomplicated way. But it's that's changed a lot where I don't 
yeah, it, it's not as organized as it used to be. When you are having to, like, do you just have this reservoir of like ideas for books that you are sort of playing around with at all times? Or when you have somebody saying, okay, we need, you're going to have to have another book here coming up since <laughs> this is your livelihood. Do you have to, do you have a moment of panic of thinking like, what am I doing? What is, what is it going to be? Where, where do you fall in on that? In the middle, sometimes yeah. I think there's like, in the good years, in the fat years, there's like two or three things that you don't hate in your desk that you're like, well, if I had to, I could make that. And then other times it's been like, well, I'm out of contract. What the heck? What like, and those are bad weeks. You, you spend a lot of time <laughs> in bed and like, you don't know what to do. And yeah. then you are. And another thing, I, I, it's so hard to snap out of that because I don't do very well when it's like, there's a, there's a, an assignment that you have to go find something and inspire yourself. Oh, I it know, happens. Yeah more where it's like I've got a couple things in the desk but then and you're ready to go and then something else comes out that's completely you know either you get a text Max sends me something or, and you're like oh that first before any of these other things and like your own stuff just keeps getting shoved and then five or six years go by and you're like I don't even want to do that anymore I'm not there <laughs> and like you didn't make it you never made it because these other things came and seduced you instead yeah that must be somewhat of a, a relief when you get you know, introduced to a story that you're, that you're going to illustrate versus you doing the whole thing every once in a while. It's, mis you know, probably uses a little bit of a different part of your brain being able to do that and just kind of mixing that up. And it must, that must help a little bit with that. It's a different exercise completely. You're more of a stylist and it's, yeah. um, it's just a lot of fun. You're just, there, it doesn't feel like there's a ton of wrong answers. There's just, you know, you have to choose one that you like best and hope that it works. It's very fun. It's very, yeah, it's much more relaxing than this all encompassing writing and illustrating thing that just like makes you want to jump off a building a lot of days. It's really hard. <laughs> That's very relatable. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's get into the books that you picked. Um, it was funny because I tried to just sort of make a guess at the books I thought you would pick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think you probably got at least one or two of them, right? Like we yeah, about yeah. Them. I didn't know when I was thinking about it if if you were going to stick to books that were just from childhood or just sort of generally like that influenced right. you in the work that you do. So, you know, I knew Sam and the Firefly would probably make the cut, um, as you mm -hmm. kind of already mentioned. But I was sort of thinking there could have been like a like a Bruno Minari in there, or something like very design. Um, That's yeah. I think there's there are two lists at least here, like we were talking about. This is more <laughs> like. The, the, like the kid brain that you're not quite sure what happened totally. to it when you read these books but then there's also like you know late 20s brain when you discovered Paul Rand or something and you're right. like well that's that was huge <laughs> yeah like, that, that, that was a possibility <laughs> yeah I, it'd be interesting to do another list where you're more like adult books that like things that formed you when you actually knew how to do something with them but <laughs> I was surprised yeah. that um Frog and Toad didn't make the list I know I didn't have Frog and Toad until like third or fourth grade and this um, I think that these ones were more like, I don't know. There's, there's, as far as how I write, I guess, um, or what, there's something about Lobel's stuff. It's so interesting to me, but it's also so far away. He seems, both him and Sendak just felt so emotional in the work. And I, for some reason, have never felt that way. They felt almost like in, in their books, Lobel was easier to do than Sendak for me when I was a kid. I couldn't read Sendak because it was too much. Mm -hmm. But Lobel almost, in some stories, he goes there where you're like, you were overwhelmed by this one. And it, you're watching him get overwhelmed by whatever was driving that story. And I always, I never feel like that happens to me. I don't, I don't know what it is, but 
Frog and Toad should probably be on there. It's just that I never got to put Archie on a list before. And so I think oh, you no, took I'm, this- ex- I'm excited. I love your list. I'm excited about it. I was uh, just sort of like, it was an initial like, oh, I'm surprised that wasn't I know, there. I know, I know, yeah. <laughs> um okay so let's do it so let's start with your your first uh your first book what was it the first book was called the big jump um and that was by benjamin elkin and illustrated by hold on i've got it right here actually i'm gonna make some noises oh who illustrated this one Catherine evans who i have i've never seen any other work by Catherine evans um i haven't looked for it either weirdly i wasn't familiar with either one of them until uh, i got your list elkin i I looked at him after because i had two books by him that i liked a lot one was called the big jump and the other one's called the king's wish and they're very different looking books he got a different illustrator or someone did for the king's wish and it's much more um it's less graphic and less simple but the big jump there was something very weird and uncanny about it that i was always attracted to it's a very odd book um but I always, I think I read it so often. And that's most of what this list is about is that like, I, I just went back to it over and over again. And I, you know, I'm so interested when that happens, when you just sort of rub up against something enough where you're like, this is scratching an itch and I don't know what it's scratching, but <laughs> it feels good. And like, that's what this list is. It's just more like, I don't know what I was scratching, but I was scratching something with these books. And so the big jump, I just went back to over and over again. Um, it is a collection of three stories. Um about this weird castle land where these kids live and this, these kings live and the kings are sort of, it doesn't even, it's not even clear what the kings do all day. They're just sort of like <laughs> messing with each other. Yeah. Um, but I like it's so much funnier now as an adult reading that setup than it was when I was a kid. I just took it all for granted that like, okay, that's how this world works. But now I read it and it's very funny that these guys are just sort of like wandering around, you know, um, being kings and all, all of that is so funny to me. I know it's um, like are they are they two kings in one area or is yeah, this bad king coming from another area? I think the bad king lives in the same area and it's yeah. the good king and the bad king and like the middle story uh so the first story is called the big jump that's the title story and it, the premise of the story is that the king establishes to these children sitting on the on the ground that only a dog only a king can have a dog for a pet and so the king has all these dogs. And the kids are just watching him have all these dogs, which is right away very funny. But it doesn't play that way. It's not a goofy book. It's just very straight. And it's just like only, you know, in these days, only the king could have a dog for a pet. And so he lets them pet the dogs and hang out. But he's like, you can't. I'm sorry. You you know how it is. Only kings can have dogs. And then um, this one dog really takes to the main boy in in the book. And he like he's petting him a lot. And the king sees this and he's like, you know, normally this is the rule, but I'm going to make a deal with you. The other thing that kings can do is I can jump to the top of my castle in one jump. And he does it right in front of him. He jumps to the top of this turret in this crazy, hilarious jump that isn't, again, not played for laughs, but I find it funny now. And then he's like, he's way up there. And he's like, so if you can do that, you can have a dog. If you can jump to the top of the castle, you can have a dog. And so the the boy takes the dog home and they practice jumping and he can't do it. He's jumping on top of these boxes that he keeps knocking them over. And then the dog all of a sudden jumps one box to the other, like stairs all the way to the top. And the boy sees this and he's like, aha. So he goes back to the king and he's like, I can jump to the top of your castle. And the king's like, show me. And so he does it. He jumps one step to the other all the way to the top. And uh, the the kids are all like, well, we all could have done it that way. And the king's like, now you can, but he's right. He did jump to the top of the castle. So now he gets a dog. Um, And then the next story is the king just like wandering around in a stupor looking for what he said. 
is something new. And like, yeah. the boy is like, what? Like, the king has gone mad, completely mad. Yeah. And he's like, what's going on? Why do you need something new? And he's like, there's been no talk of the bad king at all. There's been no introduction of him or anything. But the king's, he's in like a pond looking for something yeah. new. He's shoulder deep in a pond. And he's like, the bad king is coming. And if I don't show him something new, he's going to take all my gold. And the boy is like, oh, man. Like, it's totally, like, there's no laugh. There's just like, it's bad. And and so the boy finally solves it. He brings this egg to the king's court as the bad king is showing up, ready to take something new. He brings this little unhatched egg, and egg hatches right there, and it can't that's something new. No one's ever seen this particular chick before because the egg is just hatched in front of them. But the funniest part to me about that story is that the bad king is like, damn it, like that was my rule. Like I brought all my guys and I'm ready to just take all your gold. But I did say that thing about something new and here's this chick. So I guess we'll go home and try again tomorrow. And like the the seriousness of that, that everyone takes these absurd premises so seriously in the book is so funny to me. Don't Um, you feel like, I'm just thinking of this now and you're saying that, that I feel like, because you were talking about it being clever and funny and it's like cleverly funny, right? And it's like, the it's a little bit like parenthood where you come up with these like absurd rules that you don't explain and then your kids just like cleverly like outsmart you about it and then you're like well damn it like I don't know why that was a rule but it just was (laughs) I was always yeah and I always did like a sort of a view of myself getting like sincerely angry where I was like I said to leave the pet snake under the bed (laughs) like like whatever whatever random thing I just made a rule about if they break that the seriousness that I'm like, I said to do I this. Like, why? There was no reason for it. It was just me. Oh, I don't know if you have windy. I got a windy gate. That's that, that's crazy. okay. It's okay. It's okay. Right. Um, yeah, that random rule, but the seriousness. I don't even know if Benjamin Elkin thought he was being funny here. I don't know what what the look on his face was as he wrote this stuff. Um, it's it's hard to say where this even comes from, and it's oh, not maybe, over. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, he's just not playing for jokes. He's not building a joke the same way. These are, I was just interested in the stories. The stories is when you read them when you're little, they're like, oh, damn, like he has to find something new. Like he really has to. He's going to lose all his gold. Like the stakes are just as high. But reading them now, I'm like, what was this guy? Well, (laughs) perhaps he was like, I mean, this is just such a random thought, but like maybe he kind of had that child reader in mind who was like really going to like that this kid continually like, cleverly outsmarts these kings and is like yeah. you know like he was and, and I don't yeah I don't know if he was trying to be funny or not but it is it is funny in the way that you've been kind of describing it, especially when you're reading it like through the whole thing all the way through it's kids yeah. don't laugh to be clear I've read this to my kids and there's never <laughs> they don't laugh they're, but they're interested and I love that duality that you can do that thing where adults might be like like kind of chuckling at the absurdity of it, but the kids are like very invested in what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. And those two things are really funny. I think that this book to me, when I do try and dig down on what effect it may have had on the work now is that I think the success of the book to me and the reason I kept going back to it was the longevity of it. It was this format of these stories that were unconnected as far as I can tell. They're not driving at one narrative idea together. It's just time spent in this world that's very minimal also, but it always felt so rich to me. And that's, a, that's such a great magic trick to pull is that you can be very straight in the text, very, very simple in the illustrations. And yet you felt like you really lived somewhere for a while after you've read it. And I think that's to do with the format of the stories and the longevity he gives it. But it's always something I've tried for in my own stuff where it's like, I want to build a, like a place that you felt you hung out for in a little for a little while. And I don't know how to do that besides just copying this sort of format where there's like just weird stories for a while. but. I think it was really like that feeling 
I've always tried to build too. And so it's, it's nice that it, there was some, something clear to tie back to like, that's what this book did to me is that I want to do that. Yeah. I feel like you can really see that like as a reader reading your books, you can see that a lot in some of your more like later books, like we found a hat or the rock from the sky where like there's these parts to the story. And even though the text is quite sparse, um, and the little stories are, are really short. There's this sense that you have spent, like you said, you've got to kind of rest with them and spend some time in their world. And rest is yeah. a good word for it because there's so I don't think I don't see a lot of opportunity for rest in stuff for children, especially yeah. like it's often just meant to be so turbo and engaging in that way where they're just like let's just give them tons of information and, and really stimulate them. And I was always so interested when something rested instead. And like, that's such an interesting thing to watch someone do. Kids don't get presented with that very often. Um, yeah, I think yeah. you do that so well. It's, it's I think, something that people really uh, like in your books. And, they, and I think that a lot of times, you know, the people who are reading these books to kids and kids were, were not always even conscious of that. But then we go like, oh, like, I, why did I really like that? And it's like, it's different, you know? Um, it's different than a lot of the kind of things you find in a lot of kids' books. So um, you also mentioned something in the newsletter about this book. You said that you liked, and I, I guess you haven't gotten into the third story yet, so you can talk about that. But you, in the third story, the the boy ends up alone in the Bad King's castle, right? Mm-hmm. And that you, there was something about that that you said you you just really liked that. And I was thinking about how there's always, not always, but there's often like a subtle, scary thing in a lot of your books. Um, but it's like, it's very subtle. Or, or it could be not subtle, but it's just done in a very in a very specific style that's never kind of in your face. And I was I like I listened to this interview, this old interview with Tommy Unger not that long ago, and he was talking about how he really loved putting you know fear into his yeah. children's books, and that he considered fear. He was talking about being a very sensual writer, which I feel like really struck me because you just don't hear that word used very much with children's it's books. Stuff. Yeah. People, yeah, people just take it, they take it the wrong way. And I think he says, you know, <laughs> that he likes fear because fear is very sensual. It's part of the senses. And so it's like in the mood and the colors and in the tension between the characters in what they say and what they don't say. And I feel like that's something that we find in a lot of your books too. And so it's just kind of curious about what it is about that that is so interesting to you. It's, I think, well, in a very simple way, it's, it's, I think that you can either make kids laugh or scare them. And that's, those are the two best ways to grab their attention in a story. Right. And sometimes mm-hmm. you can do both, but like, those are the two strongest things. I can't think of two other goals that are clearer as far as storytelling. And as I say, you can sometimes try for both, but like, um, I think it's also, um, they can plug into that so quickly thinking about that last story, how the boy ends up in the bad King's castle. He has this magic sack. Um, and, uh, it can give you whatever you want when you ask for like a new hat or something, you reach into the sack and there's the hat and the, uh, the bad King hears about this sack. And so he comes and sends some guys to steal it and they take it back to the bad King's castle. And how the boy gets it back is that he still somehow has a connection with the bag. And so in the middle of the night, he just says, I wish I was in the sack. And he pops into the sack 
somewhere in the king's castle now that he's stolen it. And it turns out that the bag had been sitting on the bad king's bed while the bad king is asleep right there. And there's something about the way he draws that, or I guess Catherine Evans drew it, where the bed is huge and and kind of puffy. It's it's like this the 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 blanket is big and soft, and he's on the foot of the bed where the bad king is like, you know, 12 feet away snoring. Um, but there was something about that. I remember feeling in a sensory way, like you're talking about where it's like, you know what it's like to be on like your parents' bed and it's not your bed. And there's an adult feeling and like he's in an adult's bedroom on a big bed that it's too big for a kid. Like there was something so relatable. I knew what that bed felt like and you're not supposed to be there and he's got to get out of there without waking anybody up. Like it went right. You have those experiences already. You have your associations all ready to go. It was so memorable to see this kid just pop into this really scary situation. But it was also like a strange, like normally with kids' stories or scary stories, you try and visually make them scary somehow. You make things pointy or you make things look evil or sharp. And here was this soft bed that was still just as scary. It was a very comfortable looking thing, but it was also scary. And that contrast, I think, was really interesting too. They weren't being overt with it. It wasn't... Um, I think it had bats on the blanket, like as a pattern, which was really cute, but it was like, <laughs> but it was still like a comfy looking place. And I remember that combination being so interesting too. That it's like, it, yeah. Well, it was yeah, it's so, it's so intimate, right? Like it's not really yeah. scary, but all of a sudden this boy is just like in this King's bed. It just, it's just yeah. like alarm of intimacy where you're like, oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, holy crap. Yeah. He went right, like scariest possible place for this bag to be. And that's where it was. Um, yeah, they, but I think that's right. Is that like you do get scared by sensual like prompts like that? It wasn't mm-hmm. you don't know much about the bad king at that point, but you know what it's like to maybe creep into your parents' room yes. when you're not supposed to or something. And so, whatever associative things you're doing, that's all sensory. That's all just like, I know what that bed feels like under my hands. Like, you just know there's so many things. And it's not because the drawing is very detailed or anything, it's not, but you just jump right there, right away. I love that. That's, that's so good. Um, okay, let's go. Let's go into your next book. Um, what is your next pick? Sam and the Firefly. Sam and the Firefly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know this my, one is has been huge for you. This is <laughs> it's a big book for me. Um, <laughs> but I think I think again, this you know this goes to mood. It's I don't you know the story and the way he does it um, is one thing, but it's I think it really was just this beautiful reduction of mood in this book that I I don't think I saw in any other book growing up. It was like, um, it was just a complete immersion. I think you and I even talked about it once where it's a nocturne. It feels like that. Mm-hmm. And there's something restful about that even. The world is asleep in most of this book besides the two characters. And that's so exciting, but also so quiet. And um, it feels like the disruption that the firefly causes um even even that was interesting because the firefly, when he learned, the story is that the firefly learns how to spell words in the sky with his light. The owl meets this firefly and says, look, look what you can do with your light. And they can make words in the sky. And isn't that fun? And immediately the firefly sees the opportunities here to cause trouble. Mm-hmm. And so he, he finds an intersection with cars and makes words stop and go in the sky. And they all crash into each other because they don't know what to do. And then he finds planes and he does that to them. But all of these things are happening at night. And that was so interesting. I remember like just people were in cars at night driving around and people were in planes. There were planes flying through the sky at night. 
And it wasn't so much what the Firefly was doing that was interesting to me. It was just that this night world was going on in a very quiet, silent way. There were intersections where cars were still meeting each other in the night. And like that, you just didn't see that very often for kids. You knew, you suspected it was happening, but you were in bed and maybe there were adults out there driving around and there were planes over top of your house and you, but it was nighttime. And the acknowledgement of that world was so interesting. Not, again, nothing to do with the story, but that larger feeling, that that mood was fascinating to me. Um, and how simply he rendered it and drew it, that it all just looked so soft and quiet um, and faded away in the edges. Yeah, you 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 mentioned that it is like very like atmospheric and it's and it's that color and that mood. It's like you're just completely immersed in that world like right away. But I think also too what is similar with this book and your your books is that it's not um it's not like a moody poetic type of book. I mean there are parts to it which we can talk about that I think have that, but like it's it's also clever and funny and kind of exciting. It's it's like because sometimes you'll find those really beautiful kind of moody atmospheric books that aren't necessarily like funny or entertaining. Do you know what I mean? Right, right. No, you, <laughs> and, can't, you can't give yourself permission with a, with an actual story. I think that's right. Yeah. And um, your your books are, I feel like that too, especially like in some of the later ones where, you know, there's these beautiful washes of color and there's sunset and night and it's gorgeous, but, and and everything is sort of, I think I've heard you talk about this sometime before in some of your work where it's like the backgrounds and things are always just kind of vague. You don't have tons of detail about where we are or what we're doing. There's little clues sometimes, but like it allows, there's a lot of space for the reader to really immerse themselves into this story. Um, But then you also have the tension of humor and, and I think that that, and, and with, and like exciting things are going on. (laughs) Um, and I think that's similar to this book in a way. Yeah, I think, well, that's, um, there's something about some books for kids and stuff for kids generally that adults make where it's almost like they want to prove, the adults making it want to prove that they are capable of feeling things or appreciating things. And so the book will be about, you know, how lovely a sunset is or how yeah. sometimes I just like to stop and look at a lake. And you're like, we all do that. Like, don't, I don't need to be taught that. I don't care that you can do it. Like you can do that in a story and also have, you know, dramatic tension or something. There's actually a really interesting combination there. If characters are behaving badly or murdering each other, but you also show that sunsets are beautiful, that can happen at the same time. And that's actually really interesting. You don't have to make the story about how capable you are of living in the world. Like that to me was just sort of, that's, that's only eating dessert. You can make the pretty thing. <laughs> yeah. like eat your vegetables too. Like tell us a story. And that approach, like you can do both. Of course you can. Of course you should. Like that's, and all of the unsaid things about the world that you are illustrating or implying are legitimate. There are part of the, It's not just because we don't address them in the text doesn't mean that we're not actively thinking about them when we make the book. It's just that that's not the point of the text. It's not the text job to describe something like that. We drew the picture and you've been there. So you know what a sunset is too. Let's all agree that sunsets are great. <laughs> and then also have a character arguing in the middle of that. That's funny. Um, I like that tension a lot. I, I remember hearing a, um, there's a documentary about Stanley Kubrick where there's a guy talking about his approach to Full Metal Jacket and how he says like, 
he wanted to just consider the subject of war. He didn't want to sort of get into what he thought of war for that one. He wanted to just consider the subject in a very neutral way, but also address that, you know, all the other things that war is, it can also be very visually beautiful, um, which is what that movie is. It's this mm -hmm. horrible situation, this horrible war, and it's shot in the most beautiful way. And these flames coming out of these villages are so pretty. And the the weird discomfort and contrast there between yeah. being able to appreciate the beauty of how this thing was made and even how it might have looked with the context of it. And that uses your full heart and head when that happens. And why not try for that? Yeah, I think that's that's so good. I, I totally agree. I feel like too, what you were saying is that without being overt about what these kids need to be appreciating it's like of course kids are going to appreciate something much more if there's space in the story to let them come up with what is beautiful to them or why it's beautiful right and you're just kind of a uh, giving them some inspiration for that but you're not telling them how to do it right so i think that that's kind of where that yeah. sort of magic can happen i guess yeah um, hopefully yeah I, you try yeah. <laughs> um, one thing we didn't, you didn't really mention too much in the newsletter, but I wanted to talk about a bit with this book is is some of the text and the writing. Um, mm -hmm. For me, I just I really really love the uh, like the first page and even the second page. Um, I just think it's a, such a nice perfect opener. <laughs> I don't know why. I think that it is. Um, it's some beautiful writing. It's and it's so clipped. And, yeah, um, and it just, it's, yeah, like he, the play on the words too. Like, I'll just, I'm just going to read the the first page, but it's just, yeah, yeah. Um, the moon was up when Sam came, Sam came out. Now is the time for fun, he said. Who, said Sam, who, who wants to play? But no one said a thing. And I just think that that is such a great opener. And even the second page <laughs> when you turn it and he's got the list of everybody being asleep and it's very rhythmic, but then he ends it with, and so was the cow. Like, it's just like, you just kind of, it just brings you into the story like right away. And it's like immersing you even more with the, and you know, that beautiful spread too of all the animals in this. Yeah. And um, his repetitiveness there too, of how he writes it. Right. Then yeah. Sam looked about and the fox was asleep and the Jay was asleep. The dog was asleep and the hog was asleep. He's not rhyming. Yeah. Um, I find that I use repetitive stuff in my writing, even when I'm writing longer form stuff, or like I like to run on and I like to repeat words conspicuously, even though it doesn't sound technically right. It, it, it's some, there's something rhythmic about it because I've never written in rhyme or even really understood technical meter, <laughs> but you're like, I, but you can replace it with this sort of weird engagement with this repetitive word. And like, he's doing that. He's not rhyming and he's not, it's hard to know if there's, you know, something, uh, rhythmic going on but he's there is a rhythm to it and it's a strange one mm -hmm. um it's great yeah and it's and it's very um there aren't any contractions i don't think or at least there's not many he's still going yeah. for the reader background um but he's uh yeah it's just all even when he's exclaiming it sounds quiet because of the way he's written it like then sam saw a light later on that's got an exclamation point on it but you still get the feeling that he's saying it quietly. Um, yeah, it's it's a great thing for that. The whole book feels quiet, even though very loud things happen. Yeah, um, that that's so true. And I and, and again, I think that's something that we see in a lot of your books too. <laughs> there, <laughs> there'll be like down. crazy stuff yeah. happening, man. But it's but it's quiet. Like it's 
And you I said like that, that somewhere much. on. We'll talk about it. But you've said that somewhere before. Like that's, I think that's like a thing for you, this quiet text. Like, well, I don't like, I think that I, you learning about film language, again, this goes back to early storyboarding and animation days and stuff is that like, you can have something happen. That's a bombastic like event and you can shoot it in a bombastic way, but that's almost a double beat. It's more mm -hmm. interesting if you shoot like a plane explosion from a long shot that it also includes like a beautiful sky and a like, you know what I mean? Like that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's a decision. And now you've done something, but if you overdo it, it just, I've never wanted to overdo it and like, just be like, also, I'm going to make this exciting. And the way I've staged it, exciting staging, I find like there's much more, I was always more excited by like the rear window approach where you have to look for it. <laughs> yeah. And then that's cool. That's like the best where it's like, people are still getting murdered, but we're not, going to make some crazy camera move about it. We're just going to show you the whole building again. Um, that's so much more interesting to me than sort of also doing whatever angle you have on it in some sort of three quarter upshot high action staging. Like that's just, that's a double beat to me. You talked about in the newsletter that um, Eastman had a background in animation, right? Mm -hmm. And you were saying that you could sort of see some of the things that he was working on or struggling with with this book and that you also experienced that when you were writing your first picture book um was how like what are some of the things now like when you're writing a picture book that you let's see like how how do you ignore the impulse to do something that's like better suited for animation and then or how do you use your background in animation to help you with a book like yeah. how are you navigating those two things it takes a minute. The motion thing takes a minute. And what I mean by that is that like, it's even what we were talking about early on with that an eye for an eye film that I was asked to adapt before I'd done any books where the, the, the premise of that or the, the pleasure of that story is when he, you watch him move from not having two eyes to something to behind something that, that sort of shows him having two eyes and the, the transition there and the settling there is the pleasure of that story. And trying to do that in book form where all you have is like maybe three poses where one, he's not behind the thing and then he's halfway behind it and then he's all the way behind it. Um, you're like, this isn't probably the best use of a still image. I'm trying to force something into this format that has a home somewhere else already. Um, I don't think you, like, you can try to dig down on that, but even The Rock from the Sky, the last picture book I did, I wondered that. So much about that first story especially is about this rock falling through the sky and when it lands on the ground, finally, I had the, the initial illustration was dust being kicked up because a rock would do that when it finally lands on the ground. But that felt too um, immediate. It felt too cinematic. It felt like a film still. There was something going on on the page then that was um, too high act or something, something about the choice of the moment. And I think that's been the trick is like choosing moments that aren't filmic, that don't look like you captured the middle frame of an action, but rather choose the moment before or after. Um, it doesn't mean that the idea might, might it be better filmed. It's just that you can at least solve that by choosing the moments that don't look like you chose the center frame of an action so that you it may as well have been, you know, just printing out a movie still or something. Um, Does it take it's you a wrestle. lot of drafts to do, to figure that out? Or is it just like something that you just sort of naturally do now that you kind of understand like, the timing for that of it. one, something was for the rock one. I remember sitting there for like a week, being like, "What is it about this this page <laughs> driving me crazy? Why is it wrong?" And it was the dust, and I just took the dust away and left the rock having landed there. 
and it fixed it. But it, I, mm. it took me a minute to realize, like, what is it? Like, is it how I'm drawing? I tried to draw the dust in like five different ways. Like, maybe I just didn't crack the style of it because I don't draw effects very much. And so, like, I thought that's what that was it. And I was like, wait a minute, no, what what business do I have? Like, that's not what this is. This is a fake rock and a fake land. There's no dust. Um, let's just cut all that out. And it's usually that's what I find is that it's mostly the time that the solution is reductive. It's not, if it's bothering you, then just take it right out. Um, but there, yeah, I think that premises that have to do with motion, just a physical problem um, in the book, if, if a physical problem is what's driving your story, um, if it's if it's a movement problem, if it's a problem that involves something moving, it's probably filmic. Whereas if it's a problem that's really funny because it's standing still, or it's, you know what I mean? Or it's the yeah. absence of mm-hmm. something you don't even see then that works as a book but if it's if your if your physical premise has to do with movement then it usually probably it should be a movie that's not a hard rule but that's what i found i think you have that as an advantage though for you when you're making these books that maybe some other people who are making picture books especially in the beginning don't have uh, an awareness of you know just of how that works and doesn't work and how to subtract and you know, yeah kind of yeah well, and it, you can see it in Sam and the Firefly, though, too, is that it's really hard for him to establish this thing. The Firefly shows us first that he has a light. And it's very complicated how he sets it up, because at first he has, like, a, visually an origin point for the Firefly where he starts fil- flying. And then there's, like, an abstract line that you see. But he's teaching visually children what's going on. And then the, the owl sees that crazy weird line that he draws, and he's like, watch. And then he draws... The, the, the owl has to draw a, like a lighter blue line in the sky that the firefly then follows. And he doesn't do this for the rest of the book. He just needs these visual sort of tricks at the beginning to show how this is happening and what to explain it. But these are all such animated ideas. If he was doing a quick animated scene of the, of the owl flying and the firefly following him, all this could be done very quickly. But in a picture book, it takes you 20 pages, 30 pages to <laughs> get going on the story that now he's established this trick for so like watching that, I was like, oh yeah, I had like that. It's basically like an eye for an eye. You, you spend 30 pages establishing your joke and then you get to use it. Um, it's not, and back then when picture books were longer, it probably made more sense. But now you'd be like, well, I need to find a faster way to establish the trick of the book. Why do you think that picture books were, why were, why was everything slower, longer? I don't know. I, I wonder whether there was a few hit books that sort of established the, the, the current length. I don't know how long Wild Things were or like Eric Carle's stuff was shorter, I guess. Maybe there were just a few that were there were like, oh, this isn't, They're this like, is easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe they, they got younger too. I feel like the P.D. Eastman ones and the Dr. Zeus ones, they were like early readers. They were meant for kids who were learning to read themselves. And that became less the focus of picture books and more that you read these to your kids. And so the length doesn't need to, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there's less text and there's less... Maybe. I don't know. This is a totally random question that is just based on my ignorance. And we've already been talking for an hour and we have like three more books. So we're like, luckily, this is a podcast that there's there's no real rules. So whoever listens to it is probably going to be game for a long time. (laughs) But just a very quick question about I'm very intrigued by early readers. I mean, I, I. personally like love picture books and that, you know, but they're, they're just such this beautiful art form, but there's something about the early reader that, I just, I, I get, maybe it just comes from that there's so many bad ones. And then, so when I find a good one, I'm just like, ah, oh, like this is great. And it's, it's such an important time for the reader that it just, it just seems like this very tricky puzzle, these early readers. And I'm curious, like, okay, why is it that 
and maybe it's a marketing thing on the shelves at stores so that kids can see it. But like, why is it an early reader is typically, you know, that they get more into a novel size? Like it's like, um, you know, they're in like a like a square, like or not like a rectangle. I don't know what you what do you call it? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like no, they they do they, they like a novel. Novels. Yeah. Um, I think why does that? Is that? Like, why does the why does the shape have to change it so they know it's not a picture book or like yeah. They meaning the children, I think. Yes, uh, is what I mean. I think that, yeah, they, I, I think that by then, um, it just feels, I hear this even about The Rock from the Sky, is that like you hear it from parents who have kids who didn't read as quickly, but they're older, is that they, this is, a, this is to their reading level, but they still felt like they read a chapter book. And that feels like just in a very simple way, regardless of if they like the story, they're proud of the amount of content they went through. It feels substantial. And um I think that that on its own was was maybe a big part of why readers evolved the way they did is that like if you did a 32 page reader book um it still wouldn't feel like you went through very much um it, well it I guess it's just that the art like sometimes it just feels like you know the art and things um have to be like uh, I don't know what the right word is but like you know it doesn't get to be as gr- as grand in a picture book because of the no. of the form and so so like sometimes I feel like the shape books are almost like early readers like a kid could pick that up and read the shape books themselves and it's like, kind of nice that it's this long kind of big picture book format it, I don't really know yeah. what I'm saying but like I'm just I think what else happens with them even just in the way of making them is that early readers um v- a lot rare like how am I going to say this? It's 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 uh it's not as necessary to that format that the pictures do much of the work, um, because you're you're you've got these longer paragraphs and there's usually narration um, in a longer way, doing a lot of the the explaining. The pictures are mostly there as companions. They're not there to um, so besides, sort of prep like, them prep them for re- reading big longer things after that is what you sort of saying. maybe but i just think that like because of that the illustrations get less ambitious because there just isn't as much for them to do they're more like they're more like uh those chapter illustrations in like a hardy boys book or something mm-hmm. where there's a lot more of them than that but that's more their job is that they're there to back up what has yeah. been read rather than inform it um sometimes i think the nate the great ones do some interesting stuff where they do use the illustrations more and there's mysteries in them and there's clues that you don't write about but for the most part it's that companion thing and that's it's just not it doesn't afford as much mood or 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 ambition i think in the illustrations it's an it's an inter- i love it i early readers are so important to me too i really really love them and i i keep trying to make one without saying i'm making one i keep like i feel like the rock from the sky is that way and even the skull the next book i have I think was like trying yeah, to Yeah, you had mentioned that before. Um, the, that you were just, trying to make it an early reader, right? Kind of. Yeah, that's the, that was the jump off point. It's not technically an early reader. There's I think there's a lot of criteria that goes into technically making an early reader that I don't mm-hmm. know about. But mm-hmm. just that feeling, the size of the text on the page and how immersive they could be versus a picture book. Um just again with the amount of time you spend in a story or with those characters. Um I tried for that, even though it wasn't, yeah, I'm, I don't know where they're going to put it on the shelf, but I'm kind, of, I'm kind of hoping they put it in the early reader section sometimes. I can't wait. I can't wait to, to see that one. I'm really, I'm really excited about for it. Um, okay. Wait, let's, let's jump into your next one actually, which might be fitting because it's, it's mm. what this kind of scary. What I think of, what is the next one? It's called in a dark, dark room and other <laughs> scary stories by <laughs> Alvin Schwartz and pictures by Dirk Zimmer. Um, and it is an early reader. Um, it's got the, I can read thing right on it with a number two, which I don't know what that means, but it looks very, <laughs> I know. 
I don't know. There must be all sorts of technical criteria. And there must have been back then too, where there was like a list of words or something you could use. Um, But yeah, this book, everyone knows this book, it feels like by now. Um, But for a minute, it didn't. I think I remember even early days doing picture books and touring them where I was reading The Green Ribbon just as a Halloween treat if we were on tour in October and you didn't find it. And then now I feel like maybe the teachers have gotten... (laughs) <laughs> the teachers are all my age and they've all remembered this book too. And so now it's more familiar or everyone's remembering like certain stories. Yeah. Maybe it's, maybe it's social media like has just yeah. brought everything yeah. back out, you know? Yeah. That's frog and toad and this book too. But yeah. yeah, you do see it around more often now. Um, and this is just, it was my first exposure to scary stories that were meant for me. I think that was the big deal. And what I still really like about designing books and doing them is that like, you still want it to look like it's for the kid. I don't, I was never attracted to books that looked like that they were making fun of the format. Like it's still exciting that you see Jenny's head on the floor, but the type is like huge. And it's like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like that combination where it's like, I'm definitely, I'm supposed to be reading this. I know I'm allowed because the type is huge, but her head's on the floor. And like that combination was so exciting to me when I first saw this book. I just remember being like, I felt like I'd found contraband or something but you didn't you knew you didn't this was sanctioned it had a big thing on it and but yet her head's on the floor and like that is so fun and I was really proud that I enjoyed it rather than was scared to death of it I felt the same way with these stories I remember being really afraid but also I found them thrilling in a way where I felt like comfortable turning the page whereas like his other book Schwartz's um scary story in the dark was just yeah. plain terrifying. Like Yes. Yeah. You know, you had to steal yourself for those. Even like when you were in fifth grade, you were like, all you right. That I lady's know. face in the haunted house story. Like, yeah. Oh man. All of that. The skin. I think there was one about skin on the roofs. Like somebody's. Skin oh God. Was the, yeah. yeah. It was just, yeah. that, that was the beauty of this one was that you'd always felt like it was never going to, it wasn't going to mess you up too badly. And you could trust that about it and move through it. It was just on the edge of being too scary, but it wasn't. And so you enjoyed yourself. And that was such a powerful experience. Yeah, you talked about, and we, we've mentioned this a few times, and we probably will more, but, but you mentioned in the newsletter something about in um, Schwartz's writing that there's that, the quietness of the text and that, you know, it works so well because it's it's kind of controlled. And I feel like I've heard you talk about this and what you what you choose to draw and not to draw like a lot and you have this I think you've said before like a like a respect for your characters too and how you portray them and how you portray your world their worlds and I I just I really love that and I think that's another thing that people who are making children's books don't always think about is this respect that you have for your characters do you think that like that respect for the characters is another way to respect the reader or is that something that you're not really conscious of? Yeah, no, I think it's, I think they're very intertwined and I think it's almost, it's the same thing as it feels connected to what we were talking about earlier, even about yourself. It feels like this talking about when you were asking about like, how do you look at work that influences you or things that you like? And like the fact that it's getting simpler, that I'm not trying to break it down into words or break it down at all. Um, to acknowledge that there are abstractions in us that don't necessarily have words for them and to mm-hmm. 
and to leave that alone and to not try to force it into a format. Again, this is the same discussion, like not try to force it into a form that maybe isn't ideal for it. It's not giving it its due. There are feelings and memories and senses that we have that it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be fair to those things to try and force them into a descriptive, at least not for me. And that that's part of it too, is that like, I'm not sure I could, I would like to be able to write that stuff. I've read writers who can at least do it better. Um, but the, uh, but it, it works for me that I can leave it out. And it's always just a more powerful experience when you say, you know, we, we I can tell you what this bear did today, but I'm not going to tell you exactly how he was feeling about it. That respects him. It respects me because I, mm-hmm. I don't have to write it. But it also respects <laughs> like, you know, there's that is the feeling is that you've maintained everybody's dignity and no one felt embarrassed about how over the top they went for page 12 through 14 or something like everyone, everyone kept themselves intact even though the story went all sorts of places there was a there's a there's a restraint and a respect in there somehow it's hard to describe which is Mm -hmm. the point but but that is the feeling is that like you feel like you're you just don't want to overdo it too like it's fun to not yeah I think that's part of it too I'm not I haven't read the skull obviously and I don't know the the folktale that it's based off of but are you allowed to sort of talk about maybe how what we're talking about right now with restraint and, and, and kind of fear. Yeah. It was a big draw for the story for me when I read it, the folktale is about, and the story, my book is about a little girl who runs away from home. Um, and for, and the different versions of the folktales that you find, she runs away from home from different reasons. Um, there's an evil aunt in one of them. I can't remember what the other one is, but it's not that. Um, and even that in my version, we left it out. Um, the way I solved it was on the very first page. All it says is one night in the middle of the night, when everyone was asleep, Otilla finally ran away. And that's the only thing we say about mm. why. And I really liked solving that puzzle too. It's like, I, if I could do it with just one word and we don't ever have to go back into why she ran away. But if you say finally, we're pretty sure she was right. And yeah. Like, that kind of tension in terms of what you're not letting out and what you're letting out. But then later on, so she runs into the woods and she has a whole night out there and she finally stumbles on this house and there's a skull living in this old house. And um, the skull is like this cursed skull who's still alive and can talk, but can't move around very well. And so she kind of helps him and takes him around the house and he gives her the tour and everything. But what was so she Otilla turns out to be very brave in the story. And the skull is a skull. In my conception, he doesn't move at all. He's not animated. Um, he can roll around, but the same way as like a basketball can. <laughs> and um and but the both of them are going through some very emotional stuff. Otilla's obviously going through some massive stuff. She's run away from home. She's finally decided that's the, her only option. And the skull is a very deeply lonely, traumatized, cursed soul in this giant house he's been in for how many hundreds of years by himself and yet because of how Otilla's character is she's very stoic she's very guarded um and just very straightforward she's not a a, a hugely emotive character and so you get this story of, and the two of them have a very deep relationship almost right away and so there's all sorts of big emotions going on right Otilla's going through something big the skull's going through something big they're both going something something big together and yet the drawings never have to do anything that way with their faces. They can walk through it almost like statues, the both of them. And yet you buy it. It suits their characters. And I don't have to embarrass them by showing them at this massive moment of grief or anguish or anything. It, 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 you believe when they don't move very much. 
And I was so interested in that combination. Again, it gave me license to draw the way I wanted to draw, but still do a very emotional story. Um, and so it, it definitely, it, it, as soon as you read it, you're like, that's for me. I can draw this. I know I can. And I'm interested in how that would be drawn. And that that's, I can't wait to read that. I love the name Otilla. That's so beautiful. Yeah. It's not a good name. <laughs> Such a good name. Um, yeah. You, from some of the sneak peeks too, that you shared, it looks like a really beautiful book. Like, and I think I've seen like, maybe I can't remember if it was the sunset in it. Oh yeah. Sunsets. Um, but again, like a very moody, uh, atmospheric yeah. scene. Yeah. Yeah, this one lent really hard. Even the palette is basically Sam and the Firefly. I think I changed his yellow to a pink for mine. But besides that. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, it's really, I don't know why. I don't know what it is about that color and that mood that I was so attracted to and continue to just look for opportunities to use. But uh, something about it, just like always, always think of it. Yeah. Yeah, well, it works, so. <laughs> yeah, it does. Hopefully it does, yeah. <laughs> well, I can't wait to read that. Should we Should we move on to our, our next yes. one? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do um, it. The next one. Okay. So the next one, the book that I picked was a specific double digest of Archie's, um, but it was it could have been any number of them. I just had piles and piles of these things, um, and I just wanted to call out their existence in my life and probably a lot of people's lives um, as being really formative and really. But I don't know how, but it must have been because whatever you're reading is what you're you know you're thinking about and you're working on, and so the collective hours spent with these books must've done something. Um, I don't, I don't quite know what it is, but there is something really strange and ambient about these books that I don't know when they were out, if they were a bigger deal and people thought they were like, you know, adventurous or scandalous or anything. But to me reading them in the nineties, even the older ones, especially the older ones, they just felt like weird tableaus of like, teen life in a normal town. And I don't know why I was just like infinitely interested or at least in, had infinite capacity to read them. Um, yeah. Did you read these? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, well, I love, yeah. I think we've talked about it before. Um, talked about Archie. Yeah. 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 I, I was a big Archie reader too. So my dad was, is massive comic. Uh, nerd. Oh, he is. Yeah. Matt, right. Yeah. And so okay. our garage was just completely filled with comic books <laughs> and of course, now, I mean, I love all of it and, and like the mad magazines, too, and just everything. But when I was a young girl, I would always just grab the Archie comics because, you know, they weren't as like grotesque looking or anything as some of his other comics that would be laying around. And there'd be like teenagers. And I think I was like probably a tween when I was really kind of interested in the Archie comics, maybe even a little younger. But to me, like the first thing that attracted me to them and maybe for you, too, and it was just was just that there was that teenage life that I pined yeah. for, I think, as a teenager. And even looking back at Archie comics now, you kind of get this nostalgia for for being a teenager, I think. And and then I I don't think I was conscious of it either. And I think what you're talking about, this this sort of calming, kind of ambient experience, I had no uh, awareness of that until you mentioned it. And then I thought about it and I was like, whoa, he's so right. Like these these kind of archetype characters which is so common in comic books but i think they're done super well in the archie comics right i think that's why they've had such a longevity because these characters are the people behind the archie comics have been able to market these characters for like every generation <laughs> and for yeah. every medium <laughs> like um but i think it's that 
and there's no continuity, right, in these stories. Like you said, you're not reading it for the – there is no story, really. And there's not – they're not even that funny. They're just sort of, like, absurd and – No, and, like, Archie himself isn't even that charismatic. Like, that's no. part of the story. You're like, why are all these girls going for this guy? Like, what is – like, I don't see it. And, like, he doesn't seem that interesting to me. No. And, like – but you don't really – that's not a, crit- a criticism that you have. It's just sort of, like, this weird – like disjointed feeling is that like no one in the book is especially interesting and it's not meant to be. They've almost like taken that down on purpose. Where, right. Like, the stakes aren't that high to anyone because no one like no one's going to get that messed up in these stories. And it's just this day to day. We talked about this for the shapes show a little bit when we, when Mac and I did the shapes books versus, and then into the show, we were like, these problems can't really be that bad or get solved too hard because we want this thing to just breathe into infinity. Like we wanted to feel like this could just keep going. And so if everyone, if anyone goes through something too hard, like that's a real marker in what should feel like a kind of a flat experience on purpose. And that's valid. That's worth it. You kind of want to return to that. Apparently you do because everyone who reads these Archie things, like I'm going to read five more of those tonight. Um, <laughs> You do want to go back and you do want to sit in this sort of like lukewarm pool for, for yeah. a while. I right? think you, yeah, I think, um, you know, also I think cause there's no, the stories are, the little snippet stories are so singular, right? Like I think that like, you know, Archie could, I don't know, know something in one story and then turn the page and he doesn't know yeah. it in the next, yeah. right? There's just, yeah. so you're able to just put yourself into these like very quick little stories and they the characters aren't really evolving or changing. And so you kind of can sort of stick with them. They can, anything can happen. And I think um, you talked about in the newsletter, just also kind of the, the time of like the sixties and the fifties and these very clean, pleasant spaces that they're always walking yeah. around. And I think yeah. that too has this very like subtle effect on you as a reader. You're just kind of, there could be all this stuff going on, but there's this feeling from their kind of backgrounds and what they're doing that makes you feel like, like you're taking a warm bath. Like it's just like. Yeah. And it was also, I think maybe that fit into it. My fascination with that time and like thinking about my parents, but just thinking about the world back then too. I think that it helps that they are so ambient. That goes back to that thing where you just, you spent time there. It doesn't really need the story to do anything massive you just want to felt like you hang out, like you hung out. Any sort of movie or story about time travel, you know, was always really dramatic. And so, but you just wanted a day. Like, what would it just a regular day in 1954 feel like or something? And that, a lot of these stories felt like that. The kids were all dressed that way. They were in slacks and sweaters and like skirts and stuff. And like the hallways were wide and clean and the high schools and the sidewalks were all clean and new. And like, they were just wandering around because there's nothing else to do. And you just felt like this is what a day would have felt like. You know, if you live by a beach, you'd probably, everyone would see each other at the beach. Like that speed of life and that the way those days would have felt. I think that was a big part of my attraction to these things was that like, this is just what a day was like. I don't care that like today, Betty got the date or something. That's not why I read the story. I read the story because it just felt like I had a day in 1954 or whatever it was. And that was worth it. I think it was. Although it was I did kind of care if Betty got the date. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Yeah, no. I was like, I'm Betty. So yeah, right, of course. Yeah, I would have been Betty also. I think in that <laughs> I related to the most of any of them. I have, I have all of these like um, 1990s 
rubber i don't even know what they're made of dolls of the archie characters and they're like missing arms and stuff like that um but yeah. bed and betty is obviously my my favorite one. right that's one <laughs> yeah yeah um you talk too and you're saying this now like you were saying that's like there's such a strange surreal pace that's going on and i think one you know we talk about that as like kind of a, we're sort of nostalgic for that i think especially now when we're looking yeah. at these types of stories and we're like kind of yeah it just feels sort of foreign to us now but also i mean i think that again and we've we've kind of keep sort of honing in on similar themes but you see that strange surreal pace i think in your books too like in the rock from the sky it's like you know yeah there's there's this giant rock falling and there's this weird cyclops like alien that's like burning up flowers and all this stuff is going on but because of the pacing and the text and the environment that's there and even their little kind of collective daydream thing they're doing. I'm not sure what they're doing. I can't remember, but yeah, like there's, <laughs> there's, um, there's just this weird surreal pace to it. And I think that like, you can see that in, in a lot of these things that how I maybe that's it's, the thing. it's like the main creative point though, is when you find that it's almost like the rock from the sky was a very interesting, we're digressing, but like, writing that felt very low stakes because I knew I'd found the speed I wanted in there in that world. And I could have slotted in any number of stories almost. It felt like I liked the ones that we did and they, it feels like, like the book now, but I remember feeling like there's a lot of right ways to do this because I just want to hang out at this speed and at this tone. And it's like, that's a real thing. It, like you don't, you, when you, when you've quieted your brain down enough to recognize it and to be like, this is as much as an important ingredient as the colors or anything else that I'm doing is this like weird pace. And it becomes the thing that you try and take care of the most when a story doesn't feel right. It may be because you've offended whatever that speed was in a very hard to determine way. Um, but it becomes a thing you're trying to protect in your book. And it can, again, it can have any number of right answers as long as it protects the speed. And it, it's what I would go back to again and again as a kid is just like that speed, that feeling that, or lack of speed is maybe a better way to put it. Um, but whatever it is, as it, it just feels like the book kind of happens somewhere very specific. I think that too, the limiting of the size of the place is really important. The Archie comics, you know, you'd have Archie and Reggie walking down the street and they would just run into Betty and Veronica often. And you're like, that sounds nice. Like how big can this town be? Like even that, where they didn't live in New York, it wasn't set in some massive place. These guys were like blocks from each other always. And it was like that, even the simplicity of that, where like they limited the size of of the world. In a, and that's very important to me. Still it is. And mm -hmm. Mac and I talk about that a lot too, where even like superhero comics and stuff where I always felt like they broke it was as soon as they go bigger than one city. It's always so fun when the superhero is in charge of a town mm -hmm. and that town has like a jail and a mayor and like all these things that can go <laughs> wrong. But no one in, no one three towns over has heard of Batman. He takes care of Gotham city. But as soon as it's like he gets shipped off to China or something, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like yeah. you broke it. Totally. Tim Burton understood that as early ones where he just made Gotham a character. And he's like, this is all just Gotham. Don't worry about it. Like this doesn't exist. As soon as you leave town, it's just nothing. It's just a void out there. But like, it's about a place. It's about a city. It's about. Well, and it's a, like a you guys both like, and I also like, um, it's like Sesame street. It's like, yeah. it all yeah. happens on Sesame street, right? It's yeah. Like there's a tight fence around Sesame street in that, in the conception of that world. You couldn't, you wouldn't leave, mm -hmm. but now they, in the new ones, they do. The puppets go out to New York and they go out, you mm -hmm. know, you set them on the Brooklyn Bridge and stuff like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Back, back, 
back up to the Bronx, please. Like, like yeah. we're, we're too far south or wherever they are. Like, it's just, that's not happening in New York. That, that show never happened in New York in my head. It happened on Sesame Street. And like, that's creatively important. You got to take care of your rules. And your rules mean like the, the smaller your world is, the tighter those rules are and the more creatively fun it is, I think. For sure. I think, yeah. you know, so I, I try to, I, the rock from the sky, I really, really love the rock from the sky. Um, and I sometimes think, okay. oh, that's my favorite. But then I also really love We Found a Hat. And I feel like, I'm not exactly sure what the words are. In my mind, I sort of feel like, I know it's probably influenced by like the end and their sleepiness and the sky and the night sky and everything. But it yeah. feels like that book is just like a dream, like a daydream. Like it's this weird thing. I don't know that lives in. And I actually sometimes remember the book wrong. Like I see different colors than they were actually in your book. Oh, it's I like so that. Weird. Yeah. A, so I, I thought I like you had like this vibe. I thought you had like this really purple sunset, but then I was looking at it. I was like, no, he doesn't have a purple. It's like kind of, it's more like, it's not purple. Like a peach. It's like a peach. I can't yeah. go purple. I have a real aversion to purple for some reason. I think. <laughs> yeah. um, Anyways, I just that, that's just a side note, but that's what I want to have happen though. And it feels like it shouldn't be wanted maybe by someone who actually makes the thing, but it happens so often that as I say, I wasn't thinking about picture books for the first like 15 years of being in school and working. I didn't think that was a job and I wasn't really looking at them. And then when I finally got back into picture books, I dug up all the old ones I loved. And so often it would happen that I had this impression of a book that was totally different from what the book was. And it meant, but it meant a lot to me. And it meant that that book had dug down in some other spot and found a new thing. Yeah. Um, you became I, kind of a, like a part of the right, like you became part of the storytelling in a way. Yeah. I have an author's note at the end of the skull that talks about this because it oh. happened on the skull is that like, I read the skull very briefly in the library on a, on a, on a, in an event I was about to do. And I was just waiting around. And so I was just in the folk section as I usually tend to do. And I pulled down this book. It was just called like ghosts and goblins or something like that. And the table of contents had one called the skull and it was like four pages long. And I read it really quickly. And then I put it back on the thing. It was my, it was time to do the event. And then I just flew home and I didn't take the book out. I didn't even know what book it was. And like a year later, I finally had been thinking about it enough where I was like, oh, I should finally find that book. And so I wrote the librarian at the, at the library and asked if they could find it. And they did given nothing, by the way. I just said, there was a story about a skull in one of your books in the library. And they were like, got it, we're on it. And they did find it. It was so crazy. That's and awesome. um, I know. But then at the, I read the story and the end of the folk, the one that I read, this little girl, um, the, basically what happens in the story is that there's a headless skeleton that comes to terrorize the skull every night and chases him around. And when when the little girl is at the house and the skull asks her if she wants to spend the night, he tells her this. He's like, you can spend the night, but I got to tell you, this is going to happen tonight too. And she gets, she's like, all right, well, I'll help you out, I guess. And so sure enough, middle of the night, headless skeleton kicks open the bedroom door and just starts screaming that he wants the skull. And in the book, um, what happens is she wrestles the, the skeleton all night. She just doesn't let go of the skull all night in the bedroom until the sun peeks through the window and breaks the spell. And the skeleton vanishes and the skull turns into a beautiful woman who it is revealed was beheaded by the man whose skeleton was just chasing her. Um, mm. And then the woman says, all right, well, you've, you know, you've done your job and now I will populate this castle with children and food and nice things. And I will also vanish, but here's your new life in this castle. Congratulations. And in this, in the year between when I'd read it, I had completely retold myself the story and not in a way where I thought I was making it up. I thought that, 
she uh, that she ran away from the skeleton into the house and that she had pushed the skeleton off a balcony and shattered it on the ground and then um, took the skull to bed and then proceeded to go down and t- pick up all the bones and like destroy them over and over again because she was so upset about a, the skeleton, but also whatever the, she was working on from having run away from home. She just finally found a vehicle to like take out her anger on. And she does it to the skeleton over and over and over again to make sure that it will never come back. Cause in my head, if a skeleton explodes and it's been animate, that thing's going to come back together and come and get you again. Mm-hmm. And so she makes sure this never happens. And then she goes to bed and that was the story I thought I'd read. And when I read the book, finally, when they sent it to me, I was like, holy cow, I've completely redone this. And that, and I was like, my, I think my thing is worth trying out if there's enough versions of this where I can make my own ending. But it's about that. It's about how we do that to stories so often is that you go back to them and you're like, what? This? This was what I've been thinking about? And you run with it. You ran with it color-wise, visually, or, or narratively, whatever you do. I think that is such an interesting and intimate process. And it's such a huge part of why this job is so fun is that you want that to happen to your books. Well, and that, that's also what's so amazing, I think, about folk tales and fairy tales is that like that's sort of the point too is to tell those stories so much that they do change and they take on new lives and 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 you get to tell the story in a different way and that's what you're doing and how exciting that you kind of get to be a part of that with that with that like yeah and you get to sort of yeah be part of that history of it or whatever it was and you're just i think that a lot of it is just reacting to whatever your perception of the audience is right if you were telling this story around a campfire to a bunch of kids, you'd probably juice it up in certain places and draw out a couple other places. And you're just adjusting for the form and for who you think you're talking to. But that's such an interesting exercise too. Like, why are you doing that? Um, It's really, it's really, really fun. It was a very fun, this one was a lot of fun because it was like partly me writing, but partly I had a structure that I couldn't, you know, mess with too much. Um, And that was really freeing because writing for yourself when it can be anything as really like it feels like you're floating in outer space in the most terrifying way. <laughs> well, I can t- I know I'm going to really really like that one. So, I'm excited. Thanks. Um okay, let's do our we're, we're like in an hour and a half. <laughs> let's I know I know. last book, five books. Let's yeah. talk about this last this last one. So, the last one is again I pulled the Archie trick where it, it's not a specific book, but it's a far side book by Gary Larson. And any of these could have been actually the one that I even put put a picture of wasn't I had the big ones, the one you showed me the other day, those mm-hmm. big galleries. Those were the ones I had, just like shelves of those things. And just, I could read them again. Just like if there was a sunny afternoon, that's where I'd be on my bed with a bunch of far side. <laughs> I love that and, you put the far side in there so much. <laughs> I like them better now. I think that I even did before appreciating now, even how well it's aged mm-hmm. and how funny I find him now. I think I laugh harder at them as an adult. When I was a kid, I think I just moved through them and was just like, there was a chuckle sometimes, but you just were looking at them so hard. But now I laugh out loud so often looking at these these uh, comics. It's so, so good. And I don't know. I don't know enough about the con- the context. Like, was there anybody else doing this? Is he no. reinvent the one panel? Or like, what is the technical history of the far side? I don't know. But like. I, yeah. I know that. Well, I don't know a whole lot either. And I don't want to I don't want to say the wrong things. I know that yeah. like, I mean, he I I don't remember. I don't know how he got started in doing it, but I know that it was like. I think it was in the eighties and the nineties. Right. And he just, he just did so yeah. many of these in the paper for so long. And then he basically was like, okay, I've had, I've had enough of this. I, I've reached my max. And he just basically kind of retired out of nowhere and caused like everybody to be in a frenzy. And I think he, um, 
uh, he also I read somewhere that he um he was also kind of grossed out I think by how like mass merchandising was sort of affecting mm-hmm. his artwork and he really wanted the art to just kind of yeah. live on its own and and so he just stopped yeah. but I don't yeah I mean he's such a master and I think that like I can totally see now why you you put it on there I mean and I too feel similarly like where I did love it growing up, but I didn't really know why. I just was like, this is funny. You know, this seems funny. But yeah. now reading them, you can see how much work is going into just this like yes. one image yes. and one punchline. And you're kind of like, fuck, that is so good. Like, how do you do yeah. that? And I Not, yeah, I think Especially James Marshall out. is kind of like that too, right? Like, Yes, yes very much. Yeah. yeah. It's that thing where you're looking at it, especially now being in the business of you know, visually trying to compose and show a joke, especially you're like, do you know how hard it is to get it at this angle? Like the angle that he found for this particular joke, if he only has one panel, an inch to the left or an inch to the right, and this thing falls apart. Like he absolutely, and like the drawings are so simple and so uh, uncomplicated that you don't give him that credit, but like he is a sniper. He is a master sniper of a joke. He will sit there for days waiting for the car to come along with a guy in the back. Like he is a, just a, a, the most patient sort of uh, like just like surgical. That's and the fact that he it. could do that every, all, you know, every, every week. Is- well, he, the, the combination of it is that it's so funny is that like he must have been in the business of just going for walks or like reading books and being like, there's a funny phrase. And then that kind of chuckle moment that he would have had to himself to think up like, yeah, what, what is, what's the deal with this anyway? Like we all know this one weird phrase, let me play with it. And then to turn into the surgeon that he was on this really off the cuff, funny gag that would have, must have occurred to him in the shower or something, but to have both those things where he's just the funny guy, you know, who's like, oh yeah, that is a kind of a funny idea to then turn into, you know, the exacting master over top yeah, of that. Yeah. You know, I watched yeah. some video and I, it was like some interview where they kind of on the spot were making him draw something. And I don't really remember any of the details. It was something oh, about chickens or yeah. something. But like, mm-hmm. even in that video, I think they said they had to come back to him like three or four hours later. Like he's not just like on the spot being oh, like, he, he's no. like, I've got to think this out, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that's <laughs> um, what's so great about it is that he's also thinking it out, but he's maintaining the stupidity of the idea that the, the absolute absurdity of giving this much time and focus and energy to a deeply dumb joke most of the time. <laughs> yeah. I, I had that same impulse for The Rock from the Sky. It's why I feel the closest to that one is that like I knew that I was like the dumber I got, the more fun I was having. And it was like, there he is. There is my Gary Larson sort of like <laughs> spirit animal. He's coming out. I'm finally finding it where it was like that hadn't happened before. With the other hat books, stupidity wasn't the idea. I was trying to get at something more concrete. But Rock from the Sky, like the dumber I got, and the more pages I even spent on that dumb idea was the humor of it. And Marshall's that way too, where Marshall, the laugh is in that he's spending three pages on this potent, like absolutely stupid joke. Yeah. And you are laughing partly at how much time he's taken of yours to get there and how much time he must have taken himself to make it. Like all of that is part of the humor in these things. And you're just laughing at yourself and at him even as the maker of them and at the joke itself all at once. It's, it's great. If Norm Macdonald does that a lot or did that a lot too with his jokes, his whole thing was taking you for a 20 minute walk for the stupidest punchline. And you were just like, <laughs> just like and you finally realized, yeah. 
Well, I think it's so crazy that Gary Larson can like just with this one image, like like it's kind of like Marshall too, where oh, how do you? It's this magical combination of simplicity, but also detail. I don't know how to explain it. It's like it's simple, but there's these little details that, if you notice, makes it so much funnier. But they're not necessarily in your face, and it's even in the text too. Well, there'll be like that was something in the video that I saw that he that. Larson was saying something about like in one of his jokes, it's like, I'm going to mess this up, but it's like a witch and she's a babysitter and the parents are just kind of mad that, she, you know, that she ate both the children. It's something like that. And the emphasis is on the word both. Right. And so he's just right. he's like paying attention. It's just this minor little like emphasis. And it's just but it just makes it so much funnier. And it's like you don't notice those things when you're a kid. But you think it's you just know that the pictures are funny or like a joke seems funny. But like when you're an adult and you're looking back now, you're like, wow, this did no wonder really, this is like so good. Yeah, there's <laughs> one I can't find it. It's in this book because I was flipping through it trying to find a picture to take of one of them for the newsletter. And there's one I can't find right now. But it and the basic thing is that like it's a human family living in a house. And uh, but this there's a man in the foreground in the kitchen, like getting a beer out of the fridge or something. And I think maybe the wife is in the picture too somewhere, but in the background through the door of the living room, there's a deer sitting on the couch laughing and sort of like bug-eyed laughing hysterically at the TV, which you don't see. But above him on the wall are all these like hunted deer heads. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the, pre- like the, the, the line underneath is something like, you know, um, Betty's boyfriend was beginning to wear on her father or something like that. <laughs> and and you could have done the same joke with the deer just sitting very plainly on the couch. But the fact that he's chosen to like break his style, actually, and because he doesn't usually have people going overboard emotionally and laughing or doing much of anything. But because it was so much funnier if he was not only a deer that, you know, this guy is used to hunting, but also that he's like laughing really annoyingly at some stupid sitcom. And that's the plus of the joke is that like he chose, you know, what make this really funny is that he was like, he's doing something that an annoying boyfriend would do anyways, like laugh way too hard at the stupid. So, and like that extra mile that he goes, like, like you're right. Like he'll, he'll nail the joke and then he'll be like, I'm going to make it even better. And it's, there's so many moments like that where he's just like, yeah, it master strokes every time, every time. You, you know, what I also find really refreshing is that he, I read somewhere that when he kind of had like a, like a quote unquote, like comeback recently, right. Where he, he released some new stuff. Oh yeah. Right. Um, yeah. That I just kind of loved that he was embracing using an iPad and like a, an iPad, the tools. Cause you feel like somebody yeah. who's that famous um, and has had so much success would be like, I'm not, I don't do computers. I don't touch that stuff. Like I have right, my right. pen, but he was like, no, I make my wife these like funny Santa Christmas cards every year. And the dumb pen is always like clogged. So I decided to start doing it on the iPad and I was like really freed. And and he's like, I wanted to play around with it. And I was like, that's so refreshing, you know? Like, yeah, I think that's part of it though, is that like, there is something about the best guys that don't give a shit. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. they're not pretending something that's outside of their conception they're not trying to understand themselves in the world and what people might think of them or try to defend whatever that is he really is just like waterson was that we talked about bill waterson in the newsletter a little bit too mm-hmm. and I, it's another glaring omission but um <laughs> but like both of those guys and all of the good ones from especially comics then like they just didn't care they were like i'm gonna do it my way and i'm gonna like it was such a singular profession and you had to be such a strong personality to do that day after day 
um it's so different yeah. than like somebody else who you know is also a genius but like does it their own way but it's such a different way is like Maurice Sendak I mean I wouldn't imagine right. him being like I'm gonna use an iPad now like right. <laughs> like yeah I mean, no there's a bit of a like there's something of a like well remember Hockney did the iPad stuff right David mm-hmm. Hockney did those covers and all that stuff with the iPad and there was some that fit him too there was something of like a fuck you there to be like watch what I like I'm gonna satisfy myself with this thing that everyone kind of hates or at least <laughs> yeah like, gonna do it anyway it's not about that and it wasn't yeah. it's not about that for either hockney or for gary larson it's it, you can get it anyway david lynch does this like where he shoots on like video he mm-hmm. would like oh, one of the most beautiful cinematographers in the world <laughs> and like he's like no i'm gonna make three hours where i shoot on a camcorder instead and like there's just some sort of middle finger there that yeah. you admire and they've earned it and it's not where the juice is for them they want it they're interested in the freedom of what it gives them rather than the polish on the final thing. It's deeply interesting. And there's a connection between all those guys, right? Totally tie the line between Gary Larson and David Lynch and David Hockney. Somehow sure. there's a few. Sure. There. I also think too that it's interesting that just the dynamics of everything where like, um, you know, Larson has no problem like calling himself a cartoonist. And, but then there's so many cartoonists out there or people like even someone is a, that I love so much, like Tommy Younger, like is like, doesn't like the word cartoonist. I don't, doesn't want to be called right. a cartoonist. Right. And I'm just like, what's the stigma there? I mean, I know I kind of, I mean, I get why they say that, but at the same time, that's again, what I kind of like about Larson. He's just like, no, that's what I do. It's, it's I'm fine with it. You know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just find him to be... I, I think that's, that happens with children's books a little bit too, where people... It's that same thing we were talking about, where it's like, I feel like the books that are just about like, how much can I appreciate a sunset yeah. are a little embarrassed. They would, they'd like to be considered, it's not a children's book. I'm just, I'm, sub, I'm sort of elevating the form or something. But you're like, this is a valid form. This yeah. means something. And you can make it mean other things. It is like, this is, this is it, it can, like a cartoonist, this means something to people. Like you said, when he quit, it like threw everyone off, like threw the world off its axis. <laughs> he had a massive impact and he never claimed to be anything other than what he was. Um, it's just like, if you get total satisfaction out of your form, I think it just shows. I think it shows that you're enjoying yourself completely and that's worth it. But kids can pick up on that too when you make picture books for them. It's like, if you are completely engaged as an adult making the thing, it comes across and that's why you try to work so hard to fill it with stuff that interests you. It's not because you're thinking about them. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to waste your own time. You're respecting yourself. Again, it comes back to that too. Like I wouldn't want to give them something I wasn't interested in. So why like don't. I'm trying to think. And luckily we were like pretty much just, we were, we were done. We were wrapping up. You were in the middle of something though. I can't remember. I was what in the middle was. of saying something really nice about you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was, I, that's right. It was some sort of like between me and Gary Larson, but then I lost the thread. Yeah, I was just, essentially, I was just saying that um, you're both very, <laughs> what was I saying? I don't know. I don't, remember. I don't know. You guys are, you guys are very modest and they have a humility. And I was just basically saying that combined with humor, oh. like really works. I think it, that's why it works so well for like a general audience and why your guys work resonates so much. I, that's what I was thinking. So, oh, well, that's very nice. Thank you so much, though, John. Yeah, like, such a trooper. Yeah. yeah, no, let me know how it turns out. And yeah, if you need anything else, let me know for sure. But thanks again. This was really, it was like the best talk. It was so nice. Oh. All right. Thanks again, John. All right. Yeah, talk to you soon. All right. Bye.